Hello, Great Minds! It's Friday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Drinks with Great Men in History. I'm your host, Zach DeBacco. This episode is brought to you by social distancing, store closures, and distance learning, which has left me with far too much time on my hands. Now, what are we doing here? Well, each episode will examine one great man that impacted the history of this beautiful and crazy world. Now, what do I mean when I say great man? Obviously, I'd like to say I'm the model, but no. Now, on a quick note, my wife told me, of all the podcasts she listens to, and there are so many, that the best ones always have a catchy theme song. Well, I don't know how rights with songs go, nor do I play an instrument, so here's what you're gonna get each episode. It's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. So today, our great man of the hour, or probably 20 minutes or so, is Hernan Cortez. Born in 1485 in Castile, which is basically the northeastern half of Spain, Hernan Cortez was not born into greatness, nor was he destined to help shape the future of Spain. I mean, we're not talking about a king or a prince. Really, Cortez could have just as easily faded into obscurity, like countless other Spanish soldiers of the 15th and 16th centuries. In 1518, Cortez found himself in the New World and disembarked on a voyage from Cuba, beginning what would be the conquest of Mexico and its greatest empire, the Aztec. So what makes Cortes a great, albeit notorious, man worthy of our first showcase? Was it his ruthless conquest of one of the most powerful forces in North America? His skills as a military leader? The fact that he helped shape and build an empire that would dominate the world for centuries? Was he even truly a great man deserving of the achievements credited to him by history? In the end, that will be for you to decide. But either way, our answers lie in Mexico. But before we dive too deep into the story of one of the most impactful, possibly evil men in history, let us first have a toast to our guest of honor, to Hernan Cortez. Now, I want you to know that I am drinking as I podcast, and you can visit my Instagram or Facebook groups to see recording photos. Now, today, we toast with a delicious Mexican lager you all know too well, Corona Especial. So, Cortez, you may be ruthless, cruel, and quite possibly just a lucky fool, but here's to the fact that you managed to conquer an empire of millions with never more than a thousand Spaniards. You may be a murderous bastard responsible for the death of thousands, but objectively, damn, that's impressive. If you've never tried Corona, now I sound stupid just saying that. I'm sure you've all enjoyed a delicious Corona with lime on a sunny beach somewhere. God knows I've enjoyed too many. Honestly, I prefer Modelo, but as we all live under the specter of the coronavirus, it seemed like the appropriate, while simultaneously inappropriate, choice. Now, I'm not a booze snob. I don't have anecdotes and catchphrases about earthy tones and fruity aromas. It's just damn good to drink. Now, to new friends, to Mexico, to his story. Cortez set sail from Cuba, no doubt with his own ambitions in search of gold and glory. After all, it was Cortez himself who said, we Spaniards know a sickness only gold can cure. But Cortez was never sent to conquer anything, and instead was sent to establish peaceful, or at least pragmatic, trade relations with the natives on the mainland. However, doubting Cortez's intentions, Diego Velezquez, the governor of Cuba and the island's ruthless conqueror, tried to shut down the mission before it began, but Cortez swiftly left Cuba, essentially a fugitive of the local government. Luckily, he would make some bold moves in the early stages of his Mexican campaign that would keep his plans of conquest alive. 
After arriving in Mexico, Cortes interacted with several Mayan villages, which he subdued with relative ease. This would not be the trend as he approached central Mexico, where a powerful rich empire was rumored to exist. In one of these villages, Cortes discovered a man named Geronimo de Aguilar. Now, Aguilar was part of an initial failed voyage and had been living among the Maya for some time. He adopted Mayan cultures and traditions and their languages. He would serve as a translator of minor significance, but his importance will reveal itself in time. So do me a favor and don't forget about this guy. Moving toward the backdrop of our great man's story, Cortez headed north toward central Mexico, making his first landing outside the Yucatan Peninsula at a spot he christened Veracruz. There, he destroyed his ships to prevent his men from deserting back to Cuba. He also took whatever gold he had from his encounters with the Maya and sent it with letters back to Spain, not Cuba. Remember, Velazquez doesn't want Cortes doing what he's doing. So Cortes knew that one man who carried more authority than Velazquez was the emperor himself, King Carlos I of Spain. Essentially, he made a show of what little actual gold he had found and promised mas y mas y mas. All the Spanish really wanted at this point was gold. Cortes finally began marching towards the heart of the massive Aztec Empire to Noctiglon with about 300 soldiers, 17 horses, 6 cannons, and approximately 200 men to carry supplies. Shortly thereafter, he would make a chance encounter with a local tribe that would change the fate of his entire expedition. Historian Ross Hassig notes that in 1519, the Maverick Conquistador rallied from near certain annihilation to victory over the Aztec Empire, thanks to an early defeat at the hands of the Aztecs' greatest rivals, the Tlaxcaltecs. Also known as the Tlaxcala, this tribe was the greatest military rival of the Aztec Empire and one of the only tribes to truly hold off Aztec dominance. In a minor skirmish, Cortes's greatly outnumbered forces, despite having a minor technological advantage, were faced with their imminent demise, but the Tlaxcala decided rather out of character to spare the Spaniards. Again turning to Ross Hassig, he remarks, but in their clashes with the Spaniards, the Tlaxcaltecs had noted how effective Spanish weapons were in breaking up their ranks. By allying with Cortes, the Tlaxcaltecs could use the surviving 250 Spaniards with their weapons as shock troops to punch through enemy lines. Cortes learned from his mistakes, or as Hasek put it, he won by losing. To put it simply, he lost the first battle, but he would go on to win the war in Mexico. Learning a lot from this, it was clear that his technological advantages wouldn't mean an instantaneous or easy victory for the Spaniards, and Cortes now knew that he never again should underestimate the abilities of his foe. Finally, it was apparent that the Tlaxcala could be a valuable ally in his campaign in Mexico. And this tribal enemy of the Aztec also saw the benefit of working with Cortez. But who's using who here? I mean, it must be Cortez masterminding this whole thing. Right? Now we should probably take a brief moment to discuss the Aztec Empire, which actually wasn't an empire at all, or at least not by any European standards or definitions of the word. I always make the comparison between the Aztec Empire and the Italian city-states. This comparison isn't perfect, but it does work. The Aztec Empire was actually an alliance of three massive, powerful city-states, Tenochtitlan, the most powerful, Texcoco, and Tlacopan. This triple alliance, as it was called, dominated central Mexico, extending its reach from Atlantic to Pacific coast, demanding tribute from the conquered, typically in the form of human sacrifice, with little successful resistance in between. The city-states mirrored that of the Italian city-states like Florence, Milan, Venice, and the Papal States, which dominated an ununified Italy at this time, tied together in culture, but not truly one entity. Moctezuma ruled like a pope in a way, having the highest authority when he had the power to enforce it. Nonetheless, the Aztec Empire, with Moctezuma and Tenochtitlan at its center, reached the height of its power at the time of Cortes's arrival around 1590. 
2019. As he continued to march towards Tenochtitlan, Lawn, Cortes would encounter Aztec messengers bearing gifts, survive an attempt on his life at Cholula, and begin the process of manipulating the situation to his benefit. One advantage that often gets overlooked when compared to his Tlaxcalan allies or big guns is what I like to call his worldview. One factor that greatly contributed to Cortes's success over the Aztec, and more so in the end than the Tlaxcala's success over the Aztec, was the idea that Cortes had a vision of conquest and an idea of empire. This endgame was essential to the lasting success of Cortes and Spain in Mexico. Cortes finally reached Tenochtitlan, where he had his first friendly encounter with the Aztec emperor Moctezuma II. This moment has been captured in several paintings of the two shaking hands like brothers and friends, which is total bullshit. In reality, Moctezuma saw little threat to those he considered weaker than him and was probably just playing along. And Cortes was likely standing there with his fingers crossed behind his back like a child, knowing he planned full well to undermine the entire Aztec political system. Now, during Cortes's time in Tenochtitlan, he was basically treated like a god, and for a time, it was actually believed by the historical community that Moctezuma actually thought Cortes was the Aztec god Quetzalcoatl, but this was likely not the case. But you can all see this story comically play out in the animated film The Road to El Dorado, a great film for the classroom, for personal entertainment, and of course, for any fan of the musical stylings of Sir Elton John. Once Cortes found himself in the city, he went about seizing control by effectively imprisoning Moctezuma and using him as a puppet to steal tribute and authority. But this wouldn't last for a few reasons. One, an angry Diego Velazquez sent a horde of Spanish soldiers from Cuba to arrest Cortes. Remember, I did say he was basically a fugitive. So Cortes was forced to ride toward Veracruz to confront this problem head on. And actually, Cortes was able to persuade the men to his side with promises of gold thus boosting his numbers, however temporary this boost may be. Second, while gone, Cortes left his men under the command of an even more ruthless bastard, Pedro de Alvarado, who mistook an Aztec religious ceremony as preparations for an attack. It's just as likely that he was looking for any reason to attack the Aztec. Either way, this led to a massacre known as the Night of Sorrows or La Noche Triste, sometimes called Alvarado's Massacre. Upon Cortes's return to the city, he found chaos and upheaval. In the process, Moctezuma was either unintentional killed by a mob of his own people or deemed useless by Cortes then executed by the Spanish. Part of me wants to insert a Moctezuma's revenge joke here, but I know it would be a shitty one. The Spaniards would be expelled from Tenochtitlan by the new emperor Cuatlahuac as they fled the city narrowly avoiding death. The Aztec tried to lock them in by destroying all bridges out of the water-surrounded city of Tenochtitlan, but the Spanish escaped by running over new bridges of their dead allies' bodies, Spanish and Tlaxcala alike. With Moctezuma dead and Cortes expelled by Moctezuma's brother, Cuatlahuac, Cortes had a new problem to deal with, getting Tenochtitlan back. Luckily for him, aside from technology and his Tlaxcalan allies, Cortes had one other friend on his side, disease. You see, Cortes may have been forced out of Tenochtitlan by the new less trusting regime, but he left them with a little present, smallpox. This is but one of many examples of the devastating impact that European diseases like smallpox and measles had on the indigenous populations and civilizations of the New World. In the greater process of the conquest of Mexico, about 50% of the population of Tenochtitlan would perish or suffer from disease. In some areas of the New World, disease would wipe out more than 90% of the native population in the first century following contact, as was the case of the Taino population in the Caribbean in a process known to history as the Colombian Exchange. Disease devastated the city's working and military class, severely weakening them in the impending siege. But most importantly, it was disease that took the life of the very successful and powerful, however short-lived emperor, Cuatlahuac. 
The importance of European technologies as an advantage belonging to Cortes should not go overlooked or be left undervalued. Here we're talking less about guns and cannons that were used to support the Tlaxcala and field campaigns against the Aztec, but instead the steel weapons and steel armor that rendered Aztec weaponry and defenses obsolete. Furthermore, horses provided Cortes and his men with maneuverability and speed, and war dogs were also used. Beyond that, other technological advances and strategies known only to Europeans in this story, like siege tactics, sailing ships, and yeah, we should probably circle back to those guns and artillery, were also used. Technology won Cortes allies, gave him a strategic edge in battle, and allowed him to encircle his enemy as they succumbed to disease and starvation until the time was right to attack the new emperor, Cuauhtémoc. But did Cortes have any lucky breaks or advantages that led to his victory beyond the traditional guns, germs, and steel argument that we have made here. There are two big ones that come to mind. First, it is likely that Moctezuma made a somewhat fair assumption that Cortes and his small force of men didn't really pose a threat to the might of the Triple Alliance, nor did the Tlaxcala. The second, more abstract advantage brings us back to our friend Ross Hassig, who paints Cortes as somewhat of a lucky fool, as he notes the importance of the agricultural season. It just so happens that when Cortes began actively campaigning against the Aztec, that most of their able-bodied fighting force had been unavailable to resist Cortes even if Moctezuma had wanted them to. Why? Well, these men were all out in the fields for the harvest season, and returning from the fields would have meant starvation for the empire, so Cortes, according to Hassig, hit the Aztec at the right time when they were caught unknowingly between a rock and a hard place. It's actually getting harder to determine if Cortez is really essential to this story at all. Now we are going to move for a moment to the margins of history. I know this is a podcast about great men, but I want you to have the full story and I never want to imply that women weren't of equal if not greater importance to various parts of history. So who is this episode's woman of the moment that has been cast to the margins of his story? None other than Donna Marina Cortez Malinche. Most people that manage to pass their high school history class at least hear the words Hernan Cortez, and anyone who's ever watched Ancient Aliens has heard of the pyramid-building Mayans and Aztec. Even still, Cortez is going to be one of the first men to be forgotten to other great men of history like George Washington, Christopher Columbus, or even bigger assholes like Hitler and Stalin. But I can guarantee that most of you have gone your whole life never hearing about Malinche. So who was she and how did she conquer the Mexica? Malinche was a woman of Mexica lineage and was one of many women gifted to Hernan Cortez and his men after a victory over a Mayan village called Tabasco. So what made her unique? Malinche was adept in language. She spoke Nahuatl or Mexica language. While also speaking Mayan. Now wait a second, that doesn't help. Cortez wasn't Mayan and he certainly didn't have time to speed through Duolingo or Rosetta Stone. But wait one second, remember that guy I told you to remember? The one that appreciated Mayan society so much that he lived among them, embraced their culture, and learned their language? Geronimo de Aguilar? Well, he just became even more relevant to our story. Let me put it to you simply. Cortez speaks Spanish, Aguilar speaks Spanish and Mayan, and Malinche speaks Mayan and Nahuatl. So through some mathematical principle that I I, as a historian, don't understand, Cortez could now understand the Aztec. Talk about an advantage Malinche allowed Cortez not only to speak to, but understand the inner workings of the Aztec Empire. One of my favorite Atlantic historians and author of Atlantic Connections, Anna Serrani, notes Malinche became one of the most important members of the Spanish expedition, serving as a translator and liaison between the Spanish and the Mexica, and was so important to the Spaniards that they soon started referring to her as Donna or Lady Marina as a token of respect. Malinche was essential to Cortez's survival at Cholula, the voice between Cortez and Moctezuma, 
and likely the voice of reason and negotiation between Cortez and the Tlaxcala. She rapidly learned Spanish and was the linchpin of this whole story. Some might say remove Cortez and another conquistador would have surely followed, although I would disagree, but remove Malinche and no conquistador would have followed and we certainly would not be talking about Cortez right now. This was a turning point moment for the Spanish, and Malinche's value was so apparent to Cortez that he took her as his mistress, legitimized her, and she bore him a son, Martin Cortez, who is sometimes called the first Mexican, at least by the Spanish definition of the word. Her legacy is somewhat controversial, however, as she was of Mexican descent and is often viewed as a traitor to her own people, people she likely saw as enemies that demanded her brothers, sisters, and friends as tribute for human sacrifice. So with the empire in a chaotic state, Cortes launched his final assault onto Nocticlan using European siege tactics unknown to, or at least not traditionally used by, the Aztec and its final emperor, Cuauhtémoc. Cortez's ingenious victory at Tenochtitlan was in many ways the beginning of the true Spanish-American empire, and it is in Mexico that the Spanish would find their money maker, silver. The Tlaxcala would go on as friends of Cortez and Spain and left virtually to their own devices, no longer having to contend with the Aztec. Much of Mexico was carved up into landed estates known as encomiendas that were essentially used to enslave the native population. Finally, Cortes successfully established a pattern of conquest that would later be used by other conquistadors like Francisco Pizarro in Peru and Alvarado in Central America. Cortes was truly a linchpin in the establishment of Spain's growing empire and a great but ruthless man. Wrapping up the key points, it is clear that many factors contributed to Cortes' success and victory over the Aztec Empire. This was truly a great feat, accomplished with a lot of help, a little luck, and a little bit of love. As Bernal Diaz, a follower of Cortes, noted, Cortes was there to serve God and His Majesty, to bring light to those who were in darkness, and to grow rich as all men desire to. Cortes stands out as the man that led the expedition that successfully orchestrated the downfall of North America's most powerful confederation. History should not ignore nor belittle the fact that it was Cortes that ruthlessly blazed a trail through Mexico, conquered the Aztec Empire, and planted the seeds of Spanish Empire, culture, and religion in North America, a legacy that boldly persists to today. For information on Cortes and his role in the conquest, I would point you to anything written by historians Matthew Restall or Ross Hasig. and for the story of Spain beyond Cortes, you can turn to no one better than John Charles Chastain's Born in Blood and Fire. So was Cortes truly responsible? responsible for Spain's early success in 16th century America. There were certainly a lot of factors that led us to the demise of the Aztec Empire, and there's no discounting the importance of advanced European technologies and strategies, especially the horse, or of Cortes's indigenous allies, the ass-kickers behind the gun. Moreover, and more connected to today, diseases like smallpox were crucial in destabilizing the Aztec Empire, and much like the Tlaxcala, disease certainly balanced the scales of war. On a more unique note, Aztec ignorance of their enemy and overall underestimation of their foe was costly. Farming seasons, timing, and Malinche's linguistic abilities were also each essential in their own way, leading to Cortez's ultimate success. But it was Cortez's ultimate success, so it's up to you! Was Cortez a great man who used his military and strategic genius to masterfully craft and control his campaign and dominate the Aztec? Or was he a lucky fool that stumbled through Mexico, benefiting blindly from every advantage he could along the way? I won't necessarily be 
answering these historical questions directly and casting doubt on the lasting impact and significance of these great men. Really, that's not what I aim to do, and truly, it's because some of them totally suck. I mean, I can't sit here and act like someone responsible for the death of millions is my hero that's just screwed up. But I will rate these men and my drinks on the scale of greatness. So for the sake of continuity and stability, I figured we better come up with a system. Greatness will be measured in crowns, because, you know, it's good to be the king. And on the following non-snobby average Joe guidelines, drinks will be rated by taste, returnability, that is to say, my desire to have another one in the future, and price. Great men will be rated by their accomplishments, leadership abilities, and how entertaining they were to me. Feel free to chime in with your own opinions on their entertainability in the comments. Each criterion is weighted out of six points. Every three points gets you a crown. So for this episode, I have to give Corona four crowns with a score of 11 out of 18 points. Not bad. Corona has an enjoyable light taste enhanced by some citrus fruit all the time, typically lime, but I like oranges too you should really give it a try. Whether you like it or not, you will find yourself returning to Corona with every beach visit. God knows I have never turned one down. Finally though, the price. I can only give them three points here as Corona comes in with an expensive price attached solely to a name. As I mentioned earlier, I prefer Modelo and there are plenty of other similar beers out there that come in at a better price. On to our great man, Hernan Cortez. Cortez's achievements when faced with overwhelming odds is nothing short of amazing. I have awarded him five points as he did some truly unbelievable things, but he didn't necessarily do anything good unless you're Spain. In terms of leadership, while Cortez came, he saw he conquered, with only one or two small hiccups along the way and never more than a thousand men at any one given time under his direct control. So for leadership, I'm giving him a solid five points as well. I will say I find Cortez's story to be fascinating. It's full of surprise twists and turns, ups and downs, and hell, it even has a little bit of a twisted love story. All of that bloodshed that comes along with Cortez also makes him pretty entertaining, so I'm giving him another solid five points for entertainment. Scoring Cortez with 15 out of 18 points, our first great man leaves with five crowns overall. Not bad, although a little hard to picture Cortez and the boys sitting on a beach in Veracruz having a Corona with lime, but I think we're all doing it. Well, that brings our first episode to a close. I hope you enjoyed and continue to listen to the show. Next episode, we will examine a father of my country, the USA, George Washington. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe, leave a review, and listen again. Be sure to follow the show on Facebook at Drinks with Great Minds in History and Instagram and Twitter at DGMH underscore History Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave the show a great, hopefully five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Feel free to pose any questions you have, and I will do my best to answer them in a future episode. If you are looking for even more DGMH, be sure to subscribe to my Patreon page, where starting next week, I will be posting short episodes on all sorts of topics from Season 1. Just follow the link in my show notes. Now, there's really only one right way to close this show. Raise a glass! Cheers to great men, good or bad like our new, and I use this very lightly, friend, Hernan Cortez. Cheers to close friends to share this drink with, even though we can't right now, and cheers to you and your health. Cheers! <laughs>